0: listeners i'm belinda ongaro and you're listening to shout for libraries on cjsr in edmonton for those of you who've never tuned in to shout before every month we pick a topic relevant to librarianship and information studies we're a group of masters in library and information Studies students here at the university of alberta and every month we bring you fresh library and information studies centric news this month in the spirit of halloween that is fast approaching we've decided to throw it back to season two, where we featured a number of stories about haunted libraries. Consider it a virtual haunted tour of the university and Edmonton's spookiest libraries, but from the comfort of your home. To kick things off, here are a few stories about the Rutherford Library.
1: Rutherford is an old building. I mean, it's been around. I mean, they built. They started building it in 1948, and it was finished in 1951. So, think about how many generations of people have gone to school and have studied here. Um, there is a presence here. Um, when we open, th- when we op- when I open in the mornings, I. I have a habit where I take my my iPhone and I put an earbud in one ear and I listen to some kind of loud, upbeat music because it makes me feel a little bit more... I don't know why it makes me feel safer. Um, There have been times where I've come in and I've felt like there's someone there or I've heard something and then I've said hello and there's no one there. So... Flicking on the lights, I kind of, I have a brisk, I have a pattern, I have a brisk brisk pace that I walk and I put one earbud in and I kind of, you know, jam as I go because otherwise you can very quickly get a little bit, you know, you can get the EBGBs a little bit. There is a feeling like there is something here. Mm. So my name is Hannah Pierce and I've worked at the Rutherford Library for 13 years. Um... I, uh, in various positions and basically my only real creepy experience happened probably, oh, it must have been pre 2008. So, um, because I was working in what was then called circulation, we now call it access services, but it was, I don't know, it was late evening. It was already dark outside. Um, And I was just in the very, very deep corners of the stacks. And the way that that floor is designed, you have to understand there's two central staircases in the back there and they're very tight and very enclosed. Um, Those used to be the original stacks of the Rutherford Library when it was all behind a desk and you had to request books. And so I was in the deep corner and I was looking for a book in sort of the philosophy area. And I I noticed a gentleman walk past me, and he was dressed in very sort of strange clothing. And it was strange enough that I kind of did a sort of eyebrow raise, like, hmm, that's kind of strange. And I mean, I've seen some strange things, so, you know, I kind of kept doing my job. He was dressed in sort of like a tweed, three-piece suit, um, high collar. His hair was slicked, like, almost like it waxed or some kind of gel. And he was very quiet, and he just kind of walked right past me. And he walked into sort of like deeper into the into the collection. And I thought to myself, oh, weird. And then I just kept working and kept looking. And I found the book that I was looking for and put that in my arm and looked at the next one and realized, oh, okay, that one's behind me. So I went to turn around. And there was no guy. And even to this day, like I'm still getting goosebumps. (laughs) Because no word of a lie. It was like, where did that dude go? (laughs) Where did that weird guy go? And I would have noticed because he, he caught my notice. And so I was like, okay, this is really weird. I'm going back to the desk. (laughs) And I didn't look for that book. I just went back to the desk and I told my colleague, I'm like, okay, the weirdest thing just (laughs) happened. I'm totally freaked. And I mean, she laughed at me and I've told the story to people many times since, but I still to this day have no idea where that man went because there was no way for him to exit that way. The way that floor is designed, he would have had to come back the way he came. Um, so I'm very glad that they have now since then sealed that area of Rutherford Library and it now belongs to the Special Collections so they can keep that ghost.
2: <laughs> my name is Kayla Larson and I'm an Indigenous intern with U of A Libraries. I work in Rutherford Library and this is my coming on my second year working there. When I first started working for the libraries, one of our jobs is to open the libraries, Rutherford North and South. So it was about my second time ever opening up Rutherford South by myself, which means um, opening up the second floor, including turning on the lights in the Harry Potter room, as well as the labs. So because I'm a little bit paranoid of opening up anything by myself, I always leave the two doors locked as I'm turning on the lights. So I come up to the second floor, go through the door, Make sure it's closed behind me, and the two doors are still locked. And I go into the Harry Potter room, and I start turning on the lights on the big switchboard. As I'm turning on the lights, I could hear what sounded like somebody walking around in the common room. And so I kind of stopped, and I looked around, and I didn't see anybody. And I started switching on the lights again, and I heard somebody walking around again. So I stopped, and I said hello, and nobody answered back. And once I said hello, the walking stopped. And it was really spooky because first thing in the morning, nobody's there, it's about eight o'clock in the morning. I know the doors are locked behind me and there's no other way of getting up there unless you have a key. So it was really scary. And I, after that, opened up all the doors and ran downstairs to find the other person who was working, opening up Rutherford North. And that's my scary Rutherford (laughs) ghost story. Hi, my name is Ursula Pillmeyer, and I'm a public service
3: assistant in the Rutherford Library. The story starts about 10 or more years ago, when I was on Tier 2A in Rutherford South, just uh, about 4 p.m. in the afternoon, a few days before Christmas, pulling books from the shelves. And suddenly I saw a movement out of the corner of my eye, and I looked and i saw that monk like figure going by with a dark brown or black habit i couldn't see any features but uh, because his hood was over his face and his hands in his sleeves so all i could see something going by and once he was out of my vision i crept to the walkway and looked and there was nobody there he couldn't have gone anywhere i didn't hear any footsteps or anything and shoulda seen me if How fast I ran down those
2: stairs.
0: (laughs) I'm sure glad I'm not spending any alone time in Rutherford these days. Next stop on our tour, the Cameron Library for Sciences, Engineering, and Business, home of the Digital Scholarship Center.
4: Good evening, listener. My name is Chris Joseph, and this next true story comes to us from the Cameron Library on the University of Alberta campus, as told to me by the security guard who watches the building overnight. The library was originally opened in 1964, so it's certainly not the oldest building on campus, but millions of people have moved through it over the last 50 years, and both the books and the walls have always been listening. For the last few years, the main floor and the basement of the library have been a 24-7 study space for students in the fall and the winter. The service desk closes in the evening, and the upper floors of the library are locked tight for the night, after they've all been cleared and checked by the staff. The security guard watches over the other public floors overnight, and he finishes the shift by checking and opening the upper floors for the new day. This story took place about a year ago at the end of a work shift for Anthony, the security guard. Anthony's sister was a student at the time and had just pulled an all-nighter on the main floor of the library. As the night shift came to a close and Anthony started checking and unlocking the upper floors, his sister decided to tag along. Moving from the top of the building and working the way down, they began turning on lights and unlocking doors. The fourth floor was empty, as usual. The map collection sat silently. The study carrels were empty. The circumpolar collection rested, undisturbed. Just as he had done every night, Anthony did a circuit of the fourth floor before taking the stairs down to the third. His sister followed close behind. Anthony opened the locked door to the third floor and turned on the lights. The third floor holds most of the library's physical book collection and is filled with shelves that stretch from floor to ceiling. As Anthony began navigating his way to the other end of the floor to open the other doors, he began to feel a presence he'd never felt before. He felt like he was being watched. His walk slowed as his heart began to race. He'd never felt anything like this before when working in Cameron. He looked behind himself to see if he was alone, and the aisle was empty, the books undisturbed. He turned his gaze back to the other end of the aisle and his heart skittered to a stop. At the end of the shelf, a body was slowly walking between the aisles. The sight of a person on the floor where no person should be would be alarming enough, but this wasn't even a whole body. Anthony stared, terrified, as the lower half of a body, wearing black pants, crossed the aisle in front of him and disappeared again from view. Anthony called out for his sister. Maybe his eyes were playing tricks on him. Maybe it was her. Almost instantaneously, his sister's voice responded, but from far behind him near the entrance door. The body Anthony had seen simply could not have been her. Anthony moved quickly back to his sister and asked if she'd seen anyone. She hadn't. Anthony described what he'd seen and insisted that they check the floor to see if perhaps someone had found a way to hide upstairs all night. They split up talking all the while to make sure they knew where each other was, and they swept the floor. They checked the bathrooms. They checked the books. They even checked utility rooms that were normally locked. Anthony and her sister were the only living things on the third floor. Anthony hasn't seen the apparition since, and he still works nights at Cameron. But he's always a little on edge now when he checks the third floor, and he wonders if the disembodied soul will ever show itself again.
0: very spooky indeed. Our last stop on the tour takes us off campus, all the way to McKay Avenue Historic Site, a former Edmonton school that's now home to the Edmonton Public Schools Archive and Museum.
5: The McKay Avenue School is the third school built in Edmonton and home to the first Alberta Legislative Assembly. It is now the Edmonton Public Schools Archives and Museum, but it is also home to ghosts. As the story goes, a gentleman by the name of Ron Hadley, who is the building's preservation technician, claims to have used a Ouija board to communicate with the ghost. He goes on to tell how he learned that this ghost was once a worker named Peter, a worker who fell off the roof during construction and died in 1912. Ron also claims that there are at least half a dozen other spirits in the building. Ron kept records of the unexplained throughout his years working at the McKay Avenue School, which is told to include incidents such as chairs mysteriously scattered, taps mysteriously turned on, doors that were locked mysteriously being unlocked, pictures being removed from walls, and the security systems picking up false readings. One day in 1983, Ron and a coworker were setting up chairs in the room for a presentation the next day. They even took the precaution of stapling down the blinds to ensure that they would stay down for this presentation. When Ron returned first thing in the morning, chairs were knocked over and thrown around the room, and some blinds were up or even ripped off of the windows. According to security, no one entered the building overnight, so, how could this have happened? There is another tale that happened only a few years ago when a staff member went into a locked basement archival storeroom to find maps strewn all over the floor and heavy custom made cabinet drawers pulled open. It is claimed that this room is always in order, and if you know any archivists, you will know they are neat and organized people. Back in 2010, the Alberta Paranormal Investigator Society conducted an investigation. During this investigation, they went to the third floor, the location of the chair incident, and they asked if the spirit could make a noise if it was there. A resounding sound of a hammer answered. They claimed there was no one else in the building and no construction was scheduled for that day. Could this have been Peter or one of the other ghosts trying to communicate? Or is there a more logical explanation for these occurrences? I will let you decide.
0: If anywhere is going to be haunted, it's going to be an archive. So many old materials and histories. Well, friends, that brings us to the end of our spooky tour. Speaking of tours, that reminds me. The theme of this year's Fun Drive is Audio Passport. And as always, we have some great swag featuring local artwork to reward our donors. Be sure to tune in for Fun Drive from October 30th to November 7th.
3: even Dracula will be
0: there! As of this airing, it's October 23rd. Chances are you still don't have a Halloween costume. Well, you're in luck because I'm about to give you my top 10 favorite literary costume ideas for you to rock this Halloween. Number one, the huge insect from Kafka's Metamorphosis. I have no suggestions on how to make this costume, but I would be thrilled to see it done. Number two victor frankenstein if you're listening to this podcast then you're probably a nerd like me who knows full well that the real monster in frankenstein is the scientist not the creature if you pull up to your socially distanced halloween party of choice on a dog sled and say you're in pursuit of your unleashed monster huge props to you number three elizabeth bennett or mr darcy from the pride and prejudice and zombies novel from quirk classics Give me comedy of manners, but make it gory, please. These costumes are sure to impress the landed gentry. Number four, Scout from To Kill a Mockingbird. Specifically her ham costume from the school pageant show. Number five, Count Olaf of A Series of Unfortunate Events. What an iconic villain. Not to mention you have countless disguises of his to choose from. My personal favorite is Shirley, Dr. Orwell's secretary in the miserable mill. Number six, Were you that kid who always borrowed the I Spy interactive books from the library? Why not show your love for the collection by dressing up as an I Spy page yourself? Deck out a t-shirt with small objects for people to spot. Number seven, need a group costume idea? Why not draw inspiration from Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Every one of you can dress up as an Oompa Loompa. Not the kids, they're all pretty awful. Number eight, a Twilight vampire. What better time to fulfill your dream of being a sparkly vampire than after the release of Stephanie Meyer's long-awaited Midnight Sun? Or you can go as Bella's old red truck and just make hideous sounds as you move around, slowly. Number nine, Fifty Shades of Grey. Literally just a t-shirt with gray Pantone cards taped to it. You're welcome. Number ten, H.G. Wells, The Invisible Man. This could go a few different ways, but I'm all for not showing up to the party and saying you were there. I hope you're feeling inspired to show off your bookish side this Halloween. Tell us on social media what literary costumes you think deserve to be on the top 10 list, or better yet, take us in your Halloween costume picks.
2: All right, love is kind of crazy with a spooky little boy like you. You always keep me. Never seem to know what you are thinking. And if a girl looks at you. It's for sure your little I will
0: be oh, and before you go, remember to visit our Facebook page or Instagram at Shout for Libraries or connect with us on Twitter at Shout, the Number four Libraries. Also, check out our past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. And don't forget to check it out.
6: Shout for Libraries is produced by Belinda Angaro, Dan Hackborn, Abby Mutakumar, and me, Timothy Arthur. The music in this episode was Cat O' Nine Tales number one, two, and three by Cindy Lee. It's Halloween by The Shags and spooky by lydia lunch our theme music is beanbag fight by scan globe next time on Shout for Libraries. What if it's not just a few old library and archive buildings that are haunted? What if the items they collect hold a dark power of their own? And not just books, what if a video, an audio recording, or even a block of digital text could doom whoever witnesses it? On November 6th we'll risk fate with our one-hour fun drive special on Cursed Media. In anticipation of this special episode, I'll leave you with an excerpt of a story by the English writer and medieval historian William Croft Dickinson about one such sinister library book. Whoever opens its covers dies soon afterwards. But here's the twist. Dickinson himself died suddenly in 1963, shortly after approving the proofs of the volume containing this story. Was it a true account of a situation Dickinson found himself in, with a cursed book that he had uncovered in his historical studies? Or could it be that his own volume of stories inherited the curse he described within? Or is it all just a coincidence? Since more than 50 years have passed since Dickinson's death, his work is now in the public domain in Canada, and I'm free to read it to you over the air. The story is called Work of Evil. Here's how it begins ever since his return to duty from his long illness Maitland Allen our keeper of printed books had been singularly reluctant to grant any access to the special collections which were in his charge so much so that the rare book room in the library had become well nigh as sacred and as difficult to enter as the secret courts of an eastern harem thus when he suddenly said to me come I'll show you the whole collection. I was taken completely by surprise. I had asked for an early Italian work by Ennius Silvius. The assistant at the library counter had disappeared with my form. Alan had come back with him. And now, strangely, I was to be shown the whole collection. Was this simply a piece of unexpected good fortune? Or had the old man some ulterior purpose? I had noticed during the last two or three weeks that he had made a point of stopping to talk to me whenever I met him in a room or a corridor. Had he singled me out in some way from the rest of my colleagues? And if so, why? Everyone knew that his recent illness had left him a little queer. Opening a door marked staff only, Alan led me through a maze of book-lined passages until at last, passing a heavy steel door, We stopped before an inner iron grill. This he unlocked, and stepping aside, he ushered me into the room. I glanced around with curiosity, but he gave me time for no more than a quick glance. There they are, he said, pointing to one of the stacks. An extraordinary collection. A frightening collection. The Lucretia and Urialis that you wanted happens to be in it, but it's very much a stranger in there. For the rest i hate them and his voice rose nervously as if in emphasis i walked over to the stack but i noticed he did not accompany me there i saw two long rows of beautiful bindings i murmured something of my appreciation and delight reverently taking down one volume after another i examined the bindings more closely all were of rich leather elaborately tooled in a variety of intricate patterns in which whorls and strange cabalistic signs predominated. I also turned to the title pages. Every work was either an incunabulum or of a date early in the 16th century, but every work was on the same theme. I ran my eye along the shelves, picking out the volumes which bore titles on their spines, still the same theme. Why, I exclaimed, turning towards him, they're all on black magic and necromancy, what you might call a collection of evil, or at any rate, a collection of evil intent. Who on earth gathered together all this devilry? Looks as though someone was striving hard to find something which at last would work. An unfortunate young man whose history you know as well as I do, answered Alan slowly. John. John. 3rd Earl of Gowrie. You may remember that after studying here, he became a law student at Padua and was there said to have dabbled in magic and witchcraft. Well, here's his library, or part of it, and I wish it had never survived. Again, I noticed the nervous pitch in his voice. Well, I replied lightly, if he did dabble in the forbidden art, he must have found it pretty ineffective. The very number of his books shows that. One would have thought that constant experiment followed by constant failure and disappointment would have been bound to bring disillusion. For a full minute, Alan made no reply. Instead, he gazed at me with an odd look in his eyes. Ineffective, he said at last. I wish to God you were right. Do you see that safe over there? It contains one further book belonging to Gowrie's collection. No one knows it is there but myself, and now you. That book is the one book which, at last, Gowrie found would work. Listen to me, you must listen to me, and I'll tell you a tale of devilry that has tormented me ever since this collection came in. Then you'll believe in effectiveness. He had pointed to a small safe in a corner of the room. I made a step towards it, but he seized me by the arm. Often I feel I must take the book in that safe and throw it into the middle of the sea, he continued. But I can't do it. I'm too afraid. Only one small book, yet it is evil itself. That one book seizes a man by the throat and strangles him to death. I looked at him in astonishment. Could it be Alan who was saying all this, and who was holding my arm so tightly that his fingers were biting into my flesh? Whatever do you mean, I asked, partly disturbed and partly angry at being held as though I were a child faced with something which might be dangerous. I wish I knew, he replied slowly and in a quieter tone. All I can tell you is that within the last 18 months, two men have been strangled to death after looking into that book. That's all. That was an excerpt from William Croft Dickinson's story, Work of Evil. He died suddenly, shortly after preparing it for publication. Tune in on November 6th at 4pm, when we at Shout for Libraries will look into the mystery and fascination of this and other cursed media. Thanks for listening.